First Thessalonians chapter two and read from um, 13 through 16. That's on page 1169 of the Pew Bible. We're continuing in Thessalonians. It struck me last weekend, this week, how really very personal Paul gets in his letters. You just feel like you ought to know him, don't you, when you're reading. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which in, is at work in you who believe. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. And now as we dismiss our young people for kids' worship, I'd ask you to stand and join us in ancient words. exactly am I doing here? Standing here week after week, speaking to you for 30, 45 minutes about God, morality, life. Why are you here listening? I distinctly remember wrestling with that question when I first began preaching some 25 years ago. I had this existential moment when I was actually preaching and I was thinking about the fact that I was preaching and I was looking out at you, looking back at me, listening to what I had to say. And I was wondering, what is going on here? I mean, how many man hours are being expended in this activity? Why should I be speaking to them? And why should they be listening to me? As I reflect on this question, I, I, I don't think you come here expecting to be entertained. Uh, I mean, if you did, you'd surely be disappointed. You would have quit coming long ago. I mean, you'd do much better staying at home watching documentaries on Discovery Channel than being here, if that's your purpose. And I don't think you come here to hear me share uh, something of my own worldly wisdom. Uh, even if I did have something useful to share with you, I would have run out of things to say long ago. And there are many others with more life experiences than I have. Well, maybe I have some authority derived from my education. I mean, this guy's got graduate degrees. Let's just listen to what he have to say. But, you know, some people may think that. But I've noticed that uh, graduate degrees, even PhDs are pretty common around here, sort of like colonels at the Pentagon. No big deal. And, of course, you can find someone with a graduate degree, even a graduate degree in theology, who will tell you most 
anything you want to hear from atheists, agnostics, from right wing fundamentalists to left wing liberation theologians. They can all be well educated. And if theological authority comes from education, it does seem odd that Jesus should have chosen men so academically challenged to be leaders of his church. Fishermen like James and John and Peter and Andrew, they would hardly qualify. No, there must be something else. Well, maybe you come to listen to me just because of my office. I am the pastor, after all, and listening to the pastor is, well, just what you're supposed to do. It's just a habit. It's a custom. And understood rightly, there may be some truth to that, but simply being the pastor doesn't tell me what to say. When I come to the pulpit, I could say most anything, and I know there are pastors who do say most anything, anything that happens to come to their mind on any given Sunday. And just because he holds the office of pastor doesn't mean that a man has something to say that's worth hearing. In fact, in the New Testament, we are warned to examine what the preacher says, for deceiving wolves will arise even from the midst of the church. So why do you get out of bed on a Sunday morning, abandon the Sunday paper, and drive into a church to listen to some middle-aged guy speak to you every week? Again, I suggest it's not because you've come here to be entertained. Or to hear me share a few pearls of wisdom I've gleaned from my 50-some years of life or my study from books of theology, I suspect you are here because you want to hear a word from God. The instrument might be a middle-aged guy who happens to be a pastor, but that's not the reason you're here. You want God to speak to you. Now, as I'm amused about what was going on here and what I was doing when I get up to speak each week, I quickly realized it wasn't about me at all. And that my job was not to give you my advice on how to get on in life or to give you my opinions on the issues of the day. My job was simply to open this book and expound its message. That's what you want and that's what you need. A word from God. And the extent to which I am faithful to the message of this book, then my words become God's words to you. Now, that's pretty awesome when you think about it. It's pretty awesome, in fact, just to to, to think about the idea that God speaks to us. But he has and he does. In Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, the first verses of that book, and we read in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God, the creator of heaven and earth, the sovereign ruler of all things, that great God has made himself known to us in words, words that we can understand, communicating truth about himself to the prophets. And ultimately, he has communicated to us by coming among us in person, in his son, Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus Christ is called the word of God. That is, he is God's supreme self-revelation in this world. And in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. And Jesus himself, the Son of God, affirmed that the entire Old Testament was, in fact, God's word to us. And it all pointed to him, he said. 
And Jesus himself designated special messengers, apostles, to be sent out by him to testify about him in the world after his death and resurrection and ascension to the Father. Our New Testament is the authoritative, God-inspired record of that apostolic teaching about Jesus and the new community in which he is proclaimed as Lord. And one of those apostles was named Paul. Paul had been commissioned by the Lord Jesus himself after Christ had risen from the dead. And Paul knew that the message he was called to proclaim was not his own. He was but a herald. He was entrusted with this message of good news, the gospel, God's gospel. The message about the coming of God's kingdom into this world through his son, Jesus Christ. Paul had said to the Galatians, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. And Paul had come to the Greek city of Thessalonica preaching this message, as he says in chapter two, verse nine, we preached God's gospel to you. He told the Thessalonians the hard truth about the holiness of God and that all humanity stood under his judgment and were objects of his wrath. But he also told them the wonderful truth of the love of God, the God who in his mercy was fulfilling all his gracious promises that he had made to his people, Israel. He was fulfilling his promises by sending his own son, Jesus, to be their Messiah, their deliverer. And not only theirs. No, he was to be the savior of the whole world. And Paul told them about this man, Jesus, who lived and taught in Galilee and Judea and how he brought the kingdom of God to earth in his life of perfect love and obedience to his father in heaven. And he told them how Jesus demonstrated the power of this kingdom of God in healing the sick and, and showing mercy to the outcasts and sinners, the tax gatherers and the prostitutes. And, and Paul told them most of all how this man, Jesus, who was more than a man, this man, Jesus was crucified. And he was crucified not because he had done anything wrong. He was crucified for us and for our sin. He was a perfect man giving his life as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And he and he alone could deliver us from God's wrath. And finally, he told them that to demonstrate the truth of Christ's victory over sin and death and as a witness to the new life now found in Jesus, God raised him from the grave on the third day after his death. And he appeared to many people over many days before he was taken up to be with his father in heaven. This was the gospel message that Paul preached. God had acted in Christ to redeem a people for himself. And now he called everyone everywhere to repent and to believe and to put their trust in Jesus the Son of God, to make Him Lord and Savior, to turn from idols and to serve the living and true God and to await His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Paul proclaimed this message. He proclaimed it in the synagogues. He proclaimed it on the street corners, wherever he could find people who would listen. And many did listen. And they responded to this message, this message of good news. Unfortunately, many of the Jews rejected Paul's message and they stirred up a Greek mob to harass the Christian believers. And Paul was forced to flee for his life. 
He left Thessalonica. And when he did, he feared for the spiritual children that he had left behind. He was fearful that they had given up on this wonderful good news. They had turned away from their Savior. They began to distrust him as an as a authentic messenger of Christ. But Paul's colleague Timothy had just returned to him with the good news that these Thessalonican Christians were standing firm in their faith. And this letter that we're studying is Paul's response to that good news. And now as he writes to these Thessalonian believers, Paul looks back on those days with a heart of thanksgiving as he thinks about how they responded to the word of God that he preached. For that's what it was. That's what it was. It was the word of God. And so this morning, as we look at this short paragraph, we want to consider Paul's encouragement to us to receive God's word. But we also want to consider Paul's warning against rejecting it. First, look at the way the Thessalonians received Paul's preaching. Verse 13 We also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. You see, when Paul preached. God was speaking. And the Thessalonians heard that divine voice, they received it, they accepted it for what it really was. Now, what does that look like? What does it mean to hear the word of God as it comes through the words of a man? Well, I think Paul refers to that back in chapter one, verse five, when he says our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. You hear the word of God when what you hear comes not simply in words. You hear the words, but there's more to it than that. You sense the presence of the divine source of those words. Paul describes this experience as as one of power. There's something about these words that, that touches you deep down in your soul. It moves you. It compels you to act. The word of God has power. And then he says the words come with the Holy Spirit. That is, you sense a personal presence. A personal presence that goes beyond the human speaker who is standing right in front of you. You see, the Holy Spirit is God's personal presence at work in the world and at work within the human heart. And that personal presence makes God known to you. Through the word of God, you hear human words, but you sense the presence of God. And then Paul says, you know, it is God speaking when those words come with deep conviction. Deep conviction. You simply know it's true. You simply know that what is being said is real. It is right. It is good. And maybe even it's beautiful. Now, how does that happen? Well, I don't know. I don't know how that happens. I mean, how do you know anything is true? How do you know that it's wrong to torture babies? I, I, you just know. How do you know that a sunset is beautiful? How do you know when you taste honey that it's sweet? You just know. How do you know when someone's being honest with you? How do you know when you're in love? You simply know. 
And that's the way it is with God's word. It has a, a, a kind of self-authenticating power. You, you just know it's true. And after all, when you think about it, what authority could there be that stands outside of God and over God, authenticating and verifying what he says to be true? No, our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. You accepted it for what it actually is, the word of God. And Paul says God's work is at God's word is at work in those who believe the, the word Paul uses here is energeo. It's a word from which we get the word energy. In fact, it's translated that way in Colossians 1:29. Paul says we preach Christ that we may present every person complete in him to this end. I labor struggling with all God's energy, which so powerfully works in me. It's an interesting word in that every time it's used in the New Testament, it's used with some non-material subject. The subject of this verb is either God, the spirit, spiritual powers, or even the human sin nature. All these powers work within us in mysterious ways. And you see that in the verse that I just read. Paul says, I labor... But I labor with all God's energy, which so powerfully works... In me, we find the same mysterious working of God within the human mind and heart in Philippians chapter two, verse 13. There, Paul first addresses a command to the human will. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he immediately adds, for it is God who works, same word, in you to will and to work, same word, according to his good purpose. This is a great mystery. How God works within us. He doesn't bypass our wills, but somehow he works in conjunction with our wills to accomplish his good purpose. That's a mystery. God's word, Paul says, was at work. Where was it at work? In those who believed. Our believing, our faith is in some sense a a prerequisite for the working of God's word in us. We must humbly come before God's word. We must be willing to receive it for what it is. We must be willing to act on what we hear. Isaiah 66, 2. This is the one I esteem, the Lord says. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. Or Psalm 25, 14. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. The Lord reveals himself to those who come to him in faith. Isn't that the way that should work? He reveals himself to those who are willing to listen. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We must be good soil, receptive to the seed of God's word. We mustn't allow the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, The desires for other things come in and choke the word and make it unfruitful. The word of God works in those who believe. The word of God has power. It has power to change us from the inside. The word of God, when used by the Holy Spirit, can can make us love the things we ought to love. It can make us hate the things we ought to hate. It can move us to forgive when we, before we've been gripped by anger and bitterness. It can empower us to, to give generously when before we were paralyzed with fear and captive to selfish pleasure. 
God's Word has a power to transform our minds, to conform our minds to the mind of Christ as it conveys to our hearts the love of God in the Gospel. The power of the Word of God. You see, this is why the Word of God is central in the Christian life. When the Word of God is heard, when it's received in faith, there God will be at work in power for His glory and He will bear much fruit. That's just the way it works. I tell you, don't, don't think you can grow as a believer without attending to the Word of God. He must speak. You must listen. And when that happens, God works powerfully in the human heart. The Word of God is powerful. It is living. It is active. It pierces our hearts. It convicts us of our sin. It convinces us of the truth. It confirms God's grace in our hearts. And the Word of God, combining with the faith of the hearer, is like a a powerful chemical reaction. Those of you with uh, children who have gone through school, who have done numerous science projects, which I hated as a parent. Surely you've combined baking powder and vinegar, most famous for creating those exploding volcanoes, which almost every child has used at one time or another as a science project. Well, well, that's what happens. You see, there's this this combination of the Word of God and the faith of the hearer. And Paul had seen this combustion, this new energy flowing out into the lives of the Thessalonian Christians. And he thanked God for what he saw. It issued in their work of faith, their labor of love, their endurance, inspired by hope. As the Word of God was their lifeline. It was the essential source of their nourishment. And we must long to hear God speak to us. And so I encourage you, as you come, as you gather for worship, I pray that you would come with a sense of expectancy. God, speak to me. God, I need to hear your voice. Lord, I want to make myself open to respond to you. I want to hear and respond in faith, love, obedience. And so we need to read this book. We need to meditate on its message. We need to memorize its words. And as we hear it, it's preached. We need to ask God to work in us for his glory. And as I said, it's the job of the preacher to expound these words. To explain, to clarify, to illuminate, to apply with prayerful conviction. The Word of God must be received in faith. And you know, in Romans, Paul even says that the Word of God is the instrument God uses even to ignite our faith. Faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the Word of Christ, he says in Romans ten seventeen. This is exactly what happened in the life of uh, John Wesley. John Wesley was, was caught up in a life of uh, religious duty. He felt himself in some sense to be a, a slave. Had no experience of his freedom of the sons of God. And he attended a, a service of worship at a small church in London on Aldersgate Street. And there uh, the preacher was simply reading from Luther's preface to his commentary on Galatians. But he was expounding the truth. That God justifies us by grace, through faith, not through our own works. And and suddenly this truth of God's word came home to John Wesley's heart. And he wrote in his journal, I felt my heart strangely warmed. Suddenly I knew that Jesus died for me. 
Suddenly I knew that he took away my sins on the cross. And suddenly it was as if the burden of his own sin fell off his back. And he entered into this new relationship with God through Jesus Christ. See, that's what happens. The Word of God has that power. And that's why when I'm sharing the, my faith, the gospel, with, with people who, who don't believe, and they tell me they don't believe, I say, well, well, you know, you ought to read one of the gospels. And I do that because reading the gospels has a power. To elicit faith. To create faith. So I encourage you to do that. Because there is a power in the Word of God. This is Paul's encouragement to us this morning. As he reflects on the experience of the Thessalonians. They received his preaching of Christ for what it really was. The Word of God to them. And in our passage he highlights one particular way. That the power of the Word of God had made itself known in their lives. You accepted our preaching. Not as the Word of men. But as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believe, in you who believe, verse 14, for you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews. See, the proof of their genuine acceptance of the apostles preaching as the word of God was their willingness to believe despite the hardship that it placed upon them. And no doubt they'd heard of the persecution that Paul experienced in Philippi immediately before his coming to their town. How he'd been stripped, he'd been severely flogged, and he'd been thrown in jail. They had seen the hostile reaction of the crowds to Paul's ministry there in Thessalonica. But that didn't stop them from believing. For they recognized in the words of Paul the words of God. The Lord God, the maker of heaven and earth, was speaking to them. Calling them. To believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it would cost them something. But because God was speaking, they knew it would be worth the cost. They knew it would be foolish not to respond. For Christ was coming again to receive them to Himself. They wanted only to be faithful until that day. The demonstration. Of the reality of their acceptance of the word of God for what it was. So I ask you, what's the demonstration? What's the proof in your life that you've received? The message of the gospel for what it truly is. The word of God himself. How has the, the word of God impacted your life? What is the evidence of its power in you? Paul encourages us to receive the word of God for what it is. And then experience the blessing of knowing the love of God in Jesus Christ. And at this point in our passage, Paul takes a sharp turn. He moves from a mood of joyous thanksgiving to one of harsh condemnation. In considering the hardship that these Thessalonian believers had suffered, Paul's mind naturally turned to a contrast. Instead of those who received the gospel, those who recognized it as God's word, he thinks of those who didn't. Consider the Jews of Judea, he said. They have rejected God's word. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews 
who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Now, I suspect Paul had a very practical pastoral concern here. He wants to encourage these Thessalonian Christians in their perseverance of the faith in the face of their suffering. And he does that first by assuring them that the persecution that they were experiencing was to be expected in the life of the believer. In other words, they shouldn't be surprised by what they were experiencing. They had become unintentional imitators following in the footsteps Of the Christians who had gone before them back in Judea. They were just facing what Christians from the beginning had always endured. Not everyone receives the word of God. And that by its very nature creates a conflict. And Jesus himself had encountered it. Jesus said to his own disciples in John 15. If the world hates you. Keep in mind. It hated me first. Matthew 10, a student is not above his teacher, Jesus said, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, the prince of demons, which is what they were saying about Jesus. How much more the members of his household. Or in John 16, all this I have told you so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the father or me. I have told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I have warned you. Paul knew this. In fact, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.12 that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's just the way it goes. So Paul wants the Thessalonians to know that the persecution they experienced was normal. It was to be expected. You can expect no less as a follower of a crucified Messiah. But there is, of course, a special irony here. Those who first rejected the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ were the Jews, the people of Israel. How is it that they rejected this word of God spoken by Paul and the gospel? Weren't weren't they the people of God? Weren't they the recipients of the promises of God? Well, the truth is, as John writes in his gospel, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. He came to his own people. But his own people received him not. And here is a great mystery that plagued Paul during his entire ministry. Why those who had been chosen as God's people, who had been given the revelation of the law of Moses, who had been given the priesthood and the promises. Why should these people have failed to recognize the voice of God? When it came among them. In fact, that voice came in the flesh. Jesus, the incarnate Word of God. They rejected Him. They killed Him, Paul says. 
Now, let's be very clear. It wasn't the Jews alone who killed Jesus. The Romans actually did the deed. And in a broader and much truer sense, we all killed Jesus. For it was for our sins that he died. But what Paul says is still true. The Jews of Judea killed Jesus and they freely took responsibility for that act. But then Paul says they had rejected and killed the prophets before him. And here Paul is simply echoing the words of Jesus himself. Uh, Jesus in Matthew 23 says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build the tombs for the prophets. You decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers. Those harsh words. Yes, they are. But they come from one who grieved when he spoke them. They come from one who also said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing These words come from one who gave his life on a cross to rescue these people from their blindness. And these words of Jesus, you see, are taken up by Paul in our passage this morning when he speaks of the sins of the Jews who had rejected their Messiah and who were now hindering his efforts to bring the saving message of Christ to the Gentiles. Their sins, he says, are being heaped up to the limit. They're being filled up to the brim of the cup until the full measure is accumulated. And finally, the wrath of God falls upon them. Harsh words. Yes, they are. But they come from one who kept bringing the gracious word of the gospel to the Jews in the synagogue time and time again after suffering at their hands time and time again. They come from one who wrote in his letter to the Romans that this Jewish rejection of Christ brings him great sorrow, unceasing anguish in his heart. For I wish that I myself were cursed, he wrote, that I could be cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. It agonized him to say that the wrath of God has come upon them at last. This is not anti-Semitism coming from Paul, the Hebrew of the Hebrews. And it has been a grievous sin when Christians of the past have used Paul's words here to justify gross injustices against the Jewish people as the persecuted became the persecutors. And some of the things that have been done in the name of Christ are utterly shameful. Nothing, Paul says here, could possibly justify any mistreatment of the Jews. But still, what Paul states is a frank recognition of reality. And I say it applies not just to the Jews of Judea, but for all those, and that includes any of us, no matter how outwardly religious, who refuse to receive the gospel. As the word of God, the wrath of God has come upon them at last. Or perhaps the wrath of God is now 
inaugurated. It's beginning to show itself fully and finally. And again, these words are no less harsh than the words of the prophets Ezekiel, which we've just been studying in the last few months, or Amos, or Isaiah. Isn't this the conclusion of the divine historian in Second Chronicles who writes, referring to the Jews, just before they were taken into exile by the Babylonians, but they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of God was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. And these words are no less harsh than the words of Jesus, who when being led to his death on a cross, saw some women who were weeping and mourning for him. And he said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your own children. For a time will come when they will say, blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore, the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us, to the hills, cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Jesus saw it coming. The wrath of God coming upon his people Israel. And it fell within a generation with the destruction of Jerusalem and its magnificent temple. When the Romans besieged that city and then overran it in A.D. 70. Even the contemporary Jewish historian Josephus described that event as God's judgment upon his people. But notice God doesn't necessarily bring down his righteous judgment upon human sin immediately. God is merciful in his patience. He allows us time to repent. And he will allow the, the weight of our sin to, to accumulate, so to speak, until it reaches its full measure before he finally pours out his wrath upon us. But it will come to all those who refuse to hear his word and to respond in faith. It will come. And Paul saw that it was already beginning to unfold among the Jews of his day. Through the hardness of their hearts, through the blindness of their eyes, the wrath of God was being revealed in them. Be warned, Paul says. You reject the word of God at your own peril. Beware when you feel something of the moving of God's Spirit. And something inside you begins to say, yes, yes, what this preacher is saying is true. And you begin to feel that this, the, the truth of it is, is something coming from beyond his mouth. God is speaking. You dare not put him off. You dare not say no. You dare not say, I'll attend to it later. You dare not say, I've got other things to concern myself with right now. Thank you very much. Because you put God off. You reject His Word. Your heart becomes harder and harder and more and more corrupt. And maybe it will be, you will never hear that voice Again. And one day, God will confirm the hardness, the corruption of your own heart forever. 
you dare not put off the Word of God. And so I come to you this morning with this message of the Gospel. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who lived, who died, who was raised from the dead, who will come again in glory. And this Jesus now calls everyone, everywhere, to repent and to believe, to turn from our sins, to entrust our lives to Him. And perhaps by the grace of God, this Word comes to you. And somehow, in the mysterious working of the power of God, you begin to see that the things you've been worshipping, the things you think are so important, the things you think you cannot live without, are simply false and empty idols. As Jeremiah describes them, they're like, they're like scarecrows in a melon pack. Somehow they scare you. They frighten you. They hold you in their power. No, no. They're nothing. They're nothing compared to the eternal, gracious God who is now speaking to you. And His gracious demand, His life-giving summons is calling you to faith and obedience, whatever the cost. Now I want you to see this is not just good advice. This is not just my opinion. Please, please, don't take my word for it. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Lord, it is an awesome thing to think that You speak to us. The great and awesome God who created all things. The God who rules. The God who is bringing all things to its appointed end. The God who created us in His image. The God who created us such that we might love You and worship You and live faithfully before You. This God speaks. Lord, I pray that we would hear Your voice. And somehow the, this cross of Christ, which is such an ugly, violent, vile thing, would become a beautiful expression of Your love for us. We would look to the cross and there see the heart of God poured out. We would look to the cross and see the awfulness of our own sin. But we would look to the cross and be cleansed by the blood of Christ, and enter into this new, complete, full, joyous relationship with the living God. The living God who speaks. Lord, may we hear these words for what they truly are. Your words.